Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me director Paul Murphy. Hello, Paul. Hello, Stuart. How are you? I'm doing very well, apart from the, the rambling on about my leaky roof that I was telling you earlier. I'm fine. Yeah. It's a wet day, all right. It bloody is. It bloody is. So, we, me and you, I mean, just to give the audience some context, you and, you and I have been meaning to do this podcast for some while. So, yeah. um, we've, got, we've got plenty to talk about with your projects, and... Um, we can talk about your processes, and we can also look at your um, your work outside uh, being a director, which is sort of work, the, the 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 volume of work you've done as sort of second unit director and AD, and we can look at how that feeds your understanding and confidence as a director when you come to make your own stuff. Okay. Yeah. Sure thing. Cool. Um, so let's start with the first. The first film that you sent me a link for to, to look at way back when we started this conversation, um, Wipeout. Yes. Now that's a silent movie. It certainly is, yes, indeed. So, Har- harking it, back to the, the greats of, of yore, I like to think. And, and me being um, a Leighton boy, it's also shot not a million miles from my house. Yeah, it's shot in Lee Valley, yeah. I run around Lee Valley when it's not raining. And, uh, yeah, I... Yeah, and it's outside, so, you know, you don't have to pay any location fees uh, and you don't have to hire any lights. And it suited the story. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was nice to... It's nice to... Because when I go on runs, I run through, you know, parts where we shot the film and I, there's always a little wry smile if I'm not panting like an idiot. Um about, oh, yeah, we shot that scene here, which is kind of nice, do you know what I mean? And I'm sure one day I'll bring my kids there and they'll watch the film and we'll all be very, you know, nostalgic together. Now, what what, make, what was, was was making it a silent movie also part of that logic that I don't need lights, I don't need much of a crew? Um, it kind of wasn't, it kind of wasn't. Basically, the reason I made Wipeout was, uh, there was a lot of different reasons, but I'd made a... A pre- my previous film was called Stop that I made in 2012 and that I made Wipeout in 2014, yeah, which is yeah. two years ago now, blimey. Um, 
And after stop, stopped it quite well in the festival circuit, and obviously I then entered every single you know competition and every single you know from London thing and Channel Four thing and BBC thing, and just trying to get the next short or the next show off the off the ground. Mm. And that takes what that's work in itself. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing about making a film. Like you make the actual film, and then that's work, and then you spend the year doing more work of the festival circuit, and then you go right, what's my next film? Yeah. So. I was in that process for, you know, nearly the guts of two years. And then, sadly, a really good friend of mine died uh, of a heart attack, age 37, completely wow. out of blue. It threw all of me and my friends for six. Um, and he was, a, he was a magic man. He was a legend of a man. Kieran Finnan was his name. God rest him. And he traveled the world for three years. He was, you know, the, the kind of guy everyone loved. And he was the most gentle, humble guy. And when he died, it was like, fucking hell, man. Life is short. Yeah. Do what you want to do. And then I realised, you know, I really direct. I really want to direct. It's all I've ever wanted to do. And I haven't directed since 2012. What the fuck? So I looked for a... Because I'm not very good without a deadline. I'm pretty useless. Like, I, I know myself well enough to know that, you know, I'll procrastinate until the cows come home. So mm. I looked for, like, a 48-hour type film competition where I knew, right, I've got a gun to my head, I've got to make a film. Right. So I found one in Denmark. It was called the Our House Short Film Challenge. Right. And that was a 60, six, no, not 60 hour, was it 60 hour? No, six days, basically, to make a film from idea to completion. So I responded really well to that. Hmm. I thought, brilliant, cool. I, you know, I've got to make a film in six days. How the fuck can I make a film in six days? Jesus, I'm nervous. So there's a writer I've been... Uh, working with over the last few years, Daisy Marty's her name. She's brilliant. Uh, she also runs, so we just met for coffee. Do you want to do this competition? She went, fuck yeah. So we just had a thought about what we could talk about, really. What we could film, I mean. So uh, I've been working with these two comedians, Haste and Lawrence, who star in the film. And okay. we, yeah, we just kind of decided to make a... Um, a short comedy about a man with OCD who falls in love with this jogger who he sees on his various days walking around a park and then takes up jogging to try and win her affections. So it's kind of very Harold Lloyd-based type, you know, Woody Allen, silent comedy type, uh, that kind of thing. And the reason we did, we recorded the audio um, on both days because the whole idea was it wasn't like we didn't originally have it as a silent film. We did. Okay, okay, that's interesting. So there was dialogue originally that you you had. No, no, there was no dialogue, but there was. We were going to, you know, create a tapestry of you know natural sounds and all that kind of malarkey. I get you. I get you. And then we just ran out of time, so I, um, I. Uh, yeah, I, I, the thing about LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn, and a lot of recently a lot of people have been emailing me, like composers and DPs, and you know, saying, "Look, if you ever want to make a film, here I am." So, I got the DP from a LinkedIn contact and the c- composer from a LinkedIn contact. So I got in touch with the composer um, and said, uh, "Look, I've got a, I've got this, um, got the short film." that I'm doing, I explained why I was doing it, you know, talked about one of my best mates dying and all that kind of stuff, and the composer guy called Rich Keyworth said, yeah, sounds like a giggle, let's get, let's do it. So he composed the score from scratch in two days. Yeah, it was mad, man. It was nuts. And I remember, distinctly remember in the middle of it, because I'm an AD as well, and I 
a first assistant director and I, you know, we plan shoots and we, you know, our shed, we plan schedules and we make sure everything's in, you know, all our ducks are in a row so we can film, you know, the, the company can film what they're meant to film. And I remember bricking it going, I'm shooting a film in a day. I don't have a camera. I don't have this. I don't have that. And I was really nervous though, going, how can I do this? But then I, thinking about Kieran, I was like going, yeah, but man, I feel alive. I feel really, you know, good. Because it's taken me, you know, last time I felt this was two years ago when I directed Stop. So it was brilliant. It was just a case of putting myself, you know, out of your comfort zone, which, you know, you hear a lot of people say it's where good things happen. So, so yeah, it was brilliant. I loved it. And every the universe just conspired out, you know, oh, you want a composer? Here's a composer. Oh, you want a camera? Here's a, you know what I mean? So it's funny how you kind of get into this little mind space of, oh, I can't do it because I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't have this. But I think if you just go, I'm doing it, you'll find a bloody way. Do you know what I mean? No, indeed, indeed, indeed. I mean, I think I think it's, it's a. I think social media is is, you know, for better or for worse, and we'll come on to your your satire of social media. I'm going to guess in later on in this podcast, it's yeah. um, it is quite a powerful tool, isn't it, for um, for um, bringing together like-minded souls um, in yeah. a way. It doesn't mean you have to go to a big conference and shyly introduce yourself or stand on the fringes of conversation. Yeah. With, 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 with these things like you described, people will go, I am this. If you need someone, I can do it. Now, yeah. you may, you may, it may never come up, but obviously like, it, the stars aligned in terms of when these people have contacted you and work you're doing, and suddenly yeah. you go, okay, let's see if they really mean it. And yeah. then obviously you found out they did. What, when, when you... <clears throat> I mean, maybe maybe this kind of challenge is 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 a heightened a heightened version of it. But you, as a director, what's your first conversation, or when is your first conversation with your actors? Is it is is it um, is it on set or is it pre-production um, about expectations? Well, it's because normally pre-production um, and when you cast them as well. I think casting, you know, being an AD. Uh, I've worked, I think being an AD, it's funny, we were just talking about yesterday, I was filming yesterday, and uh, there's never enough time and there's never enough money, there just isn't, it doesn't matter what the feature is or what the show is, there's just never enough of anything, so the more you can prep in advance, the better, Yeah. and a lot of the shows that I've AD'd, the prep time's minimal, do you know what I mean, sometimes you have a director meeting the actor, or the day of the scene, Wow, and it's it's horrible because well you know you don't have any bloody time to chat to them you know you just want to meet just even meet like so you cast an actor and I think that's the most important job of any director is to get your cast right that's it yeah. like once you, Woody Allen says it you know that's why Woody Allen hardly directs his actors because he knows they can do it and he knows they know what he wants so you know you get a good actor they'll do their job and you just kind of you know, you kind of steer the ship a little, and that's it's. It can be quite a simple job directing if you know what you want. If you don't know what you want and you're indecisive and you've cast the wrong actor, you're fucked because it's. You know, you're trying to make a house out of you know rice like pudding. It's, yeah, it's just <laughs> gonna fall. It's gonna fall apart. You know what I mean? Okay, so, yeah. And it's really stressful, and it doesn't need to be stressful. Um, so yeah, I think you know, cast well, get a casting director. That's what I did for Stop my drama that I made with Film London, because I don't know who's out there, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's people who know better than me, so therefore, why don't you get someone who's an expert in their field? 
to go, this woman would be perfect for this part, this gentleman would be great for this part, and you see them and go, oh, yeah, cool, let's get them in. And then that's your job's made even easier because, you know, I think you've got to use the best of what everyone has to offer, and uh, that's why you collaborate with people. You know, don't... I've seen directors, I've worked with directors who, you know, the script's brilliant and their ideas are amazing and they're, you know, they're really passionate about what they want to do and then they just get the best crew they can and then they don't let them do the best work because they micromanage them and they, you know, because they're so worried about their film. They, you know, they make it about them and I think the more you give away a film... And... If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. All right. Uh, yeah, so the more you give away, uh, the more people will do their best work. And the more people do their best work, the better the film is. The better the film is, everyone's happy and you get more work. You know, you get employed again. Uh, or you win awards or your film responds well to audiences. So the way I direct is just to get the best collaborator as possible. Let them do the best work they can and I'll steer the ship, do you know what I mean? If it's going off on a tangent or actually this isn't the way I wanted it to go or, you know, we'll just have a chat about it. But I, I think... Do you, th- do you think that, that that want to control everything is 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 more fear or of, of, the pro- of, of not wanting to get, let the project go wrong or do you think it's a misunderstanding of the auteur? So the idea that they believe the auteur is someone that tells everyone what to do is very, very autocratic. It's very, very about, it's my film, in inverted commas, as opposed to when you listen to people like, you know, Sidney Lumet and things and, and Scorsese, when you actually hear them talk about what they do, it yeah. is about, I got this guy because he's a brilliant actor, I got that guy because they're a brilliant DOP, I got her because she's an amazing sound recorder. And then that means I can get on watching my film come together. Yeah, completely. Well, I was reading an article about Tony Kay last night, that, you know, the guy who directed American History X. And he yeah, was yeah, 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 he's, he's been all over my time. Commercials director, and he, he even said himself, because he's trying to get a new movie off the ground, or he is getting it off the ground, but uh, he said I was, a, I was an idiot. I was a bit of a dickhead, because I just presumed that's what you do in Hollywood, you become a prick, and you shout and scream, and that's how you, that's how you direct... And he goes, I mean, is, I, mean is that, I think is that the legend of like someone like say John Ford or something like you know drinking and yeah the, maybe the, the macho know. man drunk shouting at the crew. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think you know. I think I think savvy people. I think it's all this nonsense of film criticism and you know Hitchcock and the sixties and you know all these couple and it's the myth. You know what I mean? And everyone yeah, yeah. loves it. So, uh, but the day-to-day realities of making a film, man, it's not one man or one woman's idea. It's everyone's. You know, there's a an idea that you all get around and you coalesce around and you work towards. But to say that, Hitchcock, you know, Hitchcock or a Scorsese movie or whatever, it's not just Hitchcock or Scorsese who made those movies. Granted, you can see the theme of... Scorsese's work, you know, his thematic concerns and what, what, what kind of stories he likes to tell. And there, you can trace through all of his films, you, you know, you watch a Scorsese film, you know it's a Scorsese film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not a Scorsese film because Scorsese's beating his chest going, look at me, I did this. You know, he's not. No, not at all. So I think the auteur theory, I think, yeah, a lot, I think a lot of directors are 
frightened and inexperienced and uh, insecure um, because a lot of directors, especially at this level where I am, you know, kind of, you know, I'm, very, I'm a very experienced AD, but in terms of directing, I'm still, you know, finding my feet and being a bit of a neophyte. I want to direct TV dramas and stuff like that. But yeah. um, normally a lot of directors don't get much time on set. Do you know what I mean? They're not around the, the, the mechanics and the crews and the lifestyle of being a film. So when they do come on set they're on a back foot because maybe they haven't directed a film for a couple of years so they haven't been around the personalities for a couple of years and when you're on set it's a different beast it's alive and it's in front of you and you know it's pissing rain oh crap this scene's about you know a sunshine day where they fall in love well how the fuck are we going to film this now mm-hmm. so there's all those pressures there's never enough time or money you know there's someone's drilling half a mile down the road and they won't stop, so your sound's useless. You know what I mean? And the clock's ticking, so you're screwed. No, 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 I've just been reading um, Devil's Candy, which is a, the story of uh, Brian De Palma making Bonfire of Vanities. Right. And he, he describes a film as being trapped in a tunnel. So once you're in the tunnel, the only way out is obviously to make the film to get out the other side. Yeah. Well, if you can't see the end, that's a bit like not knowing where you're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. you, obviously, the more experience you have, you begin to trust in your own instincts that I will get to the end of the tunnel. Yeah. But in the moment, it could be a living nightmare. Because like you say, you know, it's pissing it down, and what we want is a sunshiny day. Yeah. Or I've looked at 85 locations, and I still haven't found one that I can shoot a courtroom scene in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from your, from your point of view... What, Working with your screenwriter on um, on on Wipeout, yeah. How much? How much was? How much collaboration was involved in the story as it finished? In in the writing of? Because I mean, if it was six, I'm guessing if you said it was a six day challenge, are you saying you and the writer sat down and went, "What are we going to do?" And then, or is it six days to shoot a film that's already been written? So we yeah the the idea is that you come up with the idea on the first day and on day six the film's made. So we were a little bit cheeky because we met for coffee before, you know, we started the process and said, oh, we could write a story about this. So we chatted a little bit about it, but we didn't really have an idea. Do you know what I mean? We thought maybe we could do this. Just let me stop you, set, Paul. So this is a Danish competition, yeah. Yeah, it's called the uh, the R House A A R H U S, which I believe is a place in Denmark. Okay, so how so how do they how do they know you're doing a six day challenge? And this sounds like a a really pedantic question, but I'm just trying to picture the pressure that's on you. Oh, so you just email in? Like I think we had to pay. Oh, I can't remember thirty quid or something. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things. So you pay, and they send you the information, and then they say, okay, so you've got to make. The film, and you've got to have two topics. The topics can be anything from this to this. So we decided the topic was OCD, because Daisy, the writer, is a bit OCD. Okay. She's a bit of a health freak. Got you. And, you know, yeah, she's not massively OCD, but, you know, she'll wash her hands a few times before leaving the gaff, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and therefore, if you heighten that, it becomes quite... Yeah, quite funny. Yeah. Funny. Or it just becomes a story you can tell. And then oh. we both run, so... I said, both of us run, you've got OCD, there's two subjects that fit within the criteria of what they want. <laughs> so let's do it. Because I think the 48-hour film challenge, which we were thinking of doing, they're more, 
you have to include this prop, you have to include this line of dialogue. So there was none of that with yeah, this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was a bit more liberating because essentially you could make any film. You didn't have to, you know, incorporate little, you know, key elements that they set down. So, so yeah, so basically this, we did this. We, so we wrote the script in, I think, about a day. Mm-hmm. Then we back and forwarded it. So then we filmed, we shot over two days. I think one was a Sunday and a Monday. Mm-hmm. Then I edited the film. Uh, it took about a day. And then we had the sound mix. Rich, the, Rich Keyworth, the composer, I sent him the first draft, the, fir- the r- first edit, and said, here you go, have a think, what do you think? Mm-hmm. It needs to feel a little bit like this. Plus also the soundtrack needs to drive the story because there's no dialogue, do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's yeah. got... It's quite quite a lot to do. It's kind of like, a, do you remember Tom and Jerry cartoons? I do. The, yeah. You know, obviously the, the the orchestration was key to you know the boings and the gags and all that and pushing the story forward. So it was so that was a, a new storytelling device I hadn't worked with before, which was nice to work with. You know, just how can you know the, the score tell the story as well as, you know, what you've shot and stuff. So, well, I guess, um, I guess if you're choosing to do a silent movie, then the score becomes becomes a voice, doesn't it? Not just a sound. Yeah, completely. Yeah, because we did... I felt really bad for the sound recordist, Julian Wilson, and a great uh, friend of mine, who, uh, you know, because I asked him to do it, and he came and did it for a day for free, and uh, and then he was gutted when he says... Well, so I basically just turned up and recorded loads of lovely sound for nothing. And I said, yeah, man, I'm really sorry. It just would have taken so long to cue all of the sound effects into it, you know what I mean? So I just mm. decided, look, let's just do a score. You know, we've got a day and a half. We've got to, you know, finesse the edit, get a score, and then send it on, and then it's done. So, so if anyone wants any sound effects of people running around Lee Valley... And doing humorous things, I've got loads of sound effects that I'll have to give them. So, what, so with your two actors that are the main, and you've got three, I suppose, if you include the tramp. But yeah. with your two main actors who are the, the the lion's share of the action, what was your first conversation with them about in terms of um, getting them prepared or getting you prepared to work with them? Even well, I'd, I'd worked with Greg and Marie, so it's Greg Haste and Marie Lawrence. They're a, they're a comic couple duo called Haste and Lawrence so okay. I've been with them for uh, when was it probably about seven or eight months beforehand we did a kind of a parody you remember that first kiss thing that was out a few years ago with, oh yeah yeah from London Screen Festival uh, no it was a thing called First Kiss where this fashion it was for some fashion chain these strangers oh, okay. oh, 50, it was 50 kisses wasn't it the bloody, um, yeah that was the that was the London Screen Festival yeah, thing yeah. but uh, so basically we did a, a piss take called First Fart and it was people farting in front of each other for the first time and they played all of the um, all of different people all of the farties <laughs> so uh, and then we did then we did another skit about uh, Auditions when auditions go wrong. Uh, okay. So that was funny. So I'd worked with them before. Uh, so that, that was good. So we kind of had a shorthand about how we worked. So we got in touch. I got in touch with them when we had the idea, saying, look, Daisy's written, Daisy and I have written the script. Do you want to do it? And they said, yeah, let's fucking do it. Um, and that was it, really. So we didn't really chat about it until the actual day because it was pretty much all there in the script. And... Um, and the scenes were quite solid scenes. 
scenes, if you know what I mean. You know, mm. the, the arc in, of the scene was there, and it was like, this scene is doing this. Yeah. So it did, like, if it was a dramatic film or something a bit more emotionally, you know, deep, uh, yeah. I, I definitely would have rehearsed them, do you know what I mean, at least once or twice beforehand yeah. and chatted about the characters and stuff. Since they were kind of, you know, broad stroke, you know, comedy characters, there wasn't really that much to talk about, if you know what I mean. Of course, of course. Um, so, what, 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 were the, what were the main, what would you say were the main sort of storytelling challenges in terms of taking your, your screenplay and bringing it, make, putting it, bringing it to the screen? Uh, uh, what you, in what respect? Well, like, where, where, when you were mapping this out, did, hmm. you have, did you have the ending in mind? Did you find the ending through writing it? You know, because, um, you know, it has a, it has a lovely payoff... Yeah. Um, so, did you have that in mind when you when you were writing? When right? When you no, the, the ending the ending came completely by accident. We were filming the ending, and the art director Steve Blundell came over to me and said, "It'd be funny if this happened, wouldn't it?" And I went, "That's fucking brilliant. Let's do that." Okay. So, so you filmed it without that ending in mind. Yeah. So the script that didn't happen in the script. In the script, I think. She's, I think in the, the original script, she slipped on dog poo. I think we had a story of a man walking around. So you introduce a man with a dog. Yeah. And they kind of run past him at various points. And then at the end, she slips in poo. And he comes up and she's got poo in her face and he wipes it off. And that was meant to be the end because, like, obviously if you got OCD, you wouldn't well, poo go near anyone with poo. But because he loves her, he, you know, jumps over his... Wow, that's such a different ending from 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 the. Yeah, no, it's my so yeah, the ending was completely different. Uh, plus, we couldn't get a dog. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, all right, we can't get a dog, and everyone thought as well. You know, nobody wants to see an actor covered in poo. Do you know? And how do we do the poo? Is it going to be mashed potato, coloured brown? Is it going to be one of those plastic things? Is it going to be? And then it was like, it's too much effort. Let's just do something simple. And then, this, and that's the thing. The key to Filmmaking, I think, is just keep it bloody simple, man. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You can overcomplicate and be try and be too clever and too smart, where I think... And I think the ending works really well. I don't want to say the ending, because people hopefully will watch the film after the podcast, but uh, it's a nice, simple, but bumped ending. Which no, is no, 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 I think that's, and that's, that's... I think that's a marked difference between, say, looking at two of your films, Wipeout and Stop. Wipeout is, is I would... Say the more traditional, what I'd call traditional kind of uh, short film format, i.e., there's a setup and there's a payoff. Yeah. Whereas I, would, I think what you've done with Stop is it's more of a kind of mini feature film format. There's kind of feels like there's a beginning, middle, and end to it. I'm not saying there's not a beginning, middle, and end to to, to wipe out, but yeah, you but know, what, you're, 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 you're paying us off on a good gag. Whereas obviously, the drama of Stop doesn't doesn't require a kind of Absolute revert, you know, the, the idea that you're going to give us a reversal of expectations or anything, it's yeah. more of a payoff on what you've just watched. And, yeah. and, and if we can, that's my really clumsy segue into <laughs> into uh, into stop. But just before we do, uh, just maybe thinking about your the process of making Wipeout, what would you say as a director was a was a lesson learned for you that you take forward into future projects? Uh, I think one of the I think I think the, the the genesis of it and the spirit of it I'll definitely bring into everything else I do. The fact that, you know, just bloody do it, as the Nike commercials say, 
<laughs> so basically you're saying a kind of no-fear attitude is, is, a, is a good yeah, way. Yeah, just, you know, what's, what's, what's that Goethe quote about this boldness and action or something like that? Just do it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Rings a bell. What's going to happen? Or I, I'm a bit of a worrier and I kind of like to see everything is in its place before I start something. And I think doing Wipeout was just bloody do it, man, and something will happen, and then that next thing will happen. Uh, you know, it'll happen. It'll, yeah. ju- it'll happen. And if it doesn't happen, who gives a fuck? Yeah, because if know? it doesn't happen, then that's just the same as nothing having happened. I've never ever done something. So the chances yeah. are if you do something, something will happen. Yeah, exactly. And if you fail at it, it's not a failure. It's just a learning curve. Exactly. You've done X, Y, and Z, which... You wouldn't have done if you didn't get up off your arse and say, I'm going to make a film this week. <laughs> indeed, you know I mean? indeed. No, no, totally, totally. So now, now just turning attention to, to, to Stop, then. Stop is obviously is, is a more traditional drama. There's, yeah. there's, there's people talking, for starters. There is. And um, did you write... You wrote and directed that one, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah. I wrote and directed Stop, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So, so give, us, give us the sort of... Genesis of that one, and maybe for the for the listener, give us a give us a summation as to what you think Stop is. Uh, so Stop's a drama about two women who. It's a very London film, I think, because you know I'm Irish and I'm from a small town near Dublin, uh, and not a small town. It's like forty thousand people in it, so it's a, you know a big enough town. But you know, Dub that Dublin and London are two different cities. Brilliant. They are. Brilliant in their own little respects, but completely different. Um, I think stop for me was you just you, you kind of assume in life that you know people and you know strangers and you know what they'll do or say or you kind of can see oh they're that type of person or that type of person. So I think for me stop as well as wanting to tell a story about domestic abuse. Uh, it's about how you just assume who people are and you don't know them from Adam and you've no idea what's going on with anyone unless you sit down and go how are you or you know what are you doing today or how are you feeling today and we just operate everyone well not maybe not everyone I can just talk for me but you know I operate or I used to operate in this like that's that type of person so I know exactly what they're like so I don't need to engage or you know yada 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 so stop was that was a key part for stop and I think with London you meet so many people but you don't really interact you know you interact with thousands of people every day in London but you mm. don't really have a you can't connection but like you don't really have a deep human connection you can't go around having a deep human connection with everyone because you get nothing done do you know what I mean that's where your family and friends no 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 I, I had um, I had I had a guy called uh, Darren Heyman on who's a musician who's done a short film series of sort of film projects and he was going to small villages of Britain as part of this project. Yeah. And one of the things he told me was he went to one particular village where he hadn't seen anybody at all and he was sat in the graveyard of a church and he's just strumming away on his guitar. And the first person to approach him, the first words out of her mouth were, would you like a cheese sandwich? Hmm. Now, if that happened in Regent's Park, you'd run a mile, wouldn't you? Yeah, you just assume they're nuts. Yeah, you know? but but in a small village, that's not un, that's not unreasonable. <laughs> that's kind of subtext being, "Hello, I'm very friendly. <laughs> I don't, I'm hoping to find you're friendly." Whereas cities cities force us to Im, be impersonal, don't they? It's like that thing, the classic thing of when you meet someone on an airplane, and you, 
because you're sat next to them, you don't need to ask their name. Yeah. And you find you've been talking to them for seven hours and you've never asked their name. Yeah, true, actually. That's a very good point. <laughs> yeah. And then you ask them as you're leaving. Oh, yeah. I'm not meeting you, man. All right, what's your name, by the way? Yeah. Oh, I'm Paul. All right, John. Well, best look, Paul. Yeah, and then so, you go. Whereas, I mean, yeah. obviously, it's a bit more, it's a lot more fleeting than that when you, when you, when you maybe talk to someone at a bus stop. But obviously, your, your bus stop story is that if we peel the onion layers back on anybody, we're going to find more than just what you presume. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was it, and I'd also, yeah. So I don't. And the, one of the reasons for doing the film was domestic. It's a better <clears> film, but it's like abuse, and I know people who've gone through that. And it's a story. It's a thing close to my heart. I think the fact that you know it can happen, and it does happen, and it's still happening. Um, so I wanted to investigate how a woman who is experiencing domestic abuse still rationalise it to herself and can live through it. Mm. And I think it's funny when it's funny when you've got a problem and you ask your friends and family and they go, Oh it's easy, just do this. Bloody hell, why don't you just do this? Like with her, why don't you leave him? Simple, mm. leave him. But it's really hard to do that because then um, you don't know what what's going on. Like, you know, when someone says, Oh, you just gotta do this, this, this and this and then you can be a director and it's like, yeah, but because of this I can't do that and that that so it's very easy to give advice but it's difficult to um to change and i think would stop you know leaving your partner leaving a husband when people make big life decisions it's really bloody scary do you know what i mean people don't my experience of me i can only talk about me is you know i a big experience a big life change is a massive scary thing and most me i'd rather hide from it and pretend everything's fine than yeah. i'm going to do this like when i was talking to people yesterday i was ading a tv show for channel four called married at first sight where people get married for the first time they they meet each other on the wedding at their wedding jesus and then they get married. so i was doing that so i was talking to the press lady from channel four and saying uh about cheating on people and my wife says, look, if you ever cheat me, don't, don't ever cheat me, but if you ever do, just tell me before you cheat me. If you don't want to be with me, tell me, don't cheat on me, and then I find out, and yada, yada, yada. Just be a man and just go, look, it's not working. So that's a very noble thing to do, but a lot of people, you know, would you do that? Would I do that? Would I, you know, go, look, it's not working. I don't think I'm... Well, I'd like to think I'd be strong enough because I love her. I don't want to lie to her, but... And I can't envisage... Uh, a time when I won't, then when we won't be together. Mm. Uh, but if you, for if you, if you probably got you know 10, 15, 20 men around a table, ask them how do they break, you know, how do they cheat on their wife? They'd probably say, oh, it just happened. I met this other woman. Blah 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 blah. So it'd be, it's a very brave thing to say. Look, I don't love you anymore. I think we should split up. And I put it to you that most men wouldn't don't do it that way. They just cheat, and then someone finds out, and then it turns into a horrible shit fest. So, or at least, or at least, there's the cheating on, and they go, "I've cheated on you." So, yeah, exactly. So yeah. You're, you're saying to the other person, "Do you want to leave me now?" <laughs> yeah. As opposed to, I want to leave you clearly because I've been with somebody else. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to tell you to make you make the decision, so I don't have to. Yeah, exactly. So that, so I think to stop it was like you know that's. That's an example of a big life decision that most people don't do. They just let it fart away and suddenly, who's this woman you're calling all, you know, 
every day. And why you, why is this text? You anyway, blah 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 blah. I'm kind of going off the point a little bit. But no, 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 that's a good point. But because I think I think when you start then talking about domestic abuse, you're also playing with what seems to be the perfectly logical thing to do. Because being in love and not being in love are not logical. Yeah. But being abused, being beaten up and not being beaten up are, are black and white. Completely. But, it, but the emotions that, that brought you together are what make the decision you're talking about the difficult one. Yeah. Because yeah. I, would, I would have thought, I mean, having someone that's not been a victim of any abuse, I would have thought being physically abused was enough to make you want to change your life. Yeah, you but, would think that. That's the thing. That's the, the paradigm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, you're getting beaten. Why would you stay with someone who beat you? Mm. It's an easy, just leave them. Oh, I can't because we live in a nice house and I have nice things. They're just things. Ah, uh, yeah, but, you know, how will I support myself? Well, I, uh, can't, I can't, and he tells me he loves me. Yeah. And, and I think I love him. Yeah. There, there. You know, or he didn't mean it, he'll change, you know, it only happened the once. Uh, so in, in, in the writing of it, how did you... Because one thing I can say to the, to the listener who's not watched it yet is that this is, this is a long way from preachy. This conversation is, is a lot more explicit and overt than the film. The film, the film is really clever in the sense that it, it takes us into the serious conflict of that without saying, here's some good things to know and here's some bad things to know. This is the world. It's very simple. I thought, yeah. how did you how did you manage to avoid not being too preachy about what clearly is, you know, ultimately sensible advice in the film, but it's still not given as there's an easier way out of any of this. Uh, yeah, I just I did my research and I tried to. Because I've, I've been an AD, I've read God knows how many scripts. So I've read really good scripts and I've read really, really bad scripts. And I like, mm. you know, I write, but I don't consider myself a writer, really, um, which might be a bit disingenuous to myself. But I kind of, I, I just know bad writing when I see it, do you know what I mean? So I just wanted to make sure that, and because it's very easy to be preachy, you know. Mm, no, I thought that would have been the terrifying the, thing about this subject, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't want the film to be... I wanted it to be natural, so I kind of envisaged a way where two people would have to talk to each other and they didn't want to talk to each other and they had both had made assumptions about each other. So why would they open up about personal things? So I kind of had to find a way to get them to talk without it being, you know, oh, you have a black eye. Is everything all right with you? Mm. You know what I mean? I see your wedding ring. You know, all of that kind of bollocks. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You kind of have to hide exposition, you have to hide story and action, do you know what I mean? But then mm -hmm. feeding the audience information as well as setting the world up. So it's a tricky thing to do, and I applaud any writer who can do it. So that was a thing that would stop. I wanted to make sure I got on the, you know, I didn't write it on the nose. And also because we got funding from Film London, we had to go through kind of a rigorous script development process, which was brilliant because, as you were saying about your trip to Norway and your. Um, your script writing week you've just come back from yeah, um, yeah you've got to fight for your characters you know why, why is she doing that why is she doing that why, why would they do that why would he talk to her you know what I mean so mm. they were slapping you every day with a wet fish going that doesn't make sense why would you do that and then you got to figure out actually why is she doing that I've no idea I've got to think about that and then you think about it and go oh no no she's doing it because of this 
and then you're stronger in your character because you know why she, exactly why she's there why what letter like exam for example a lot of people said why didn't she try and leave before and uh i said well this is the first time she's ever really been afraid but she's not trying to leave she just does this a lot um i don't want to give away bits of the story but you know the 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 plot point with the suitcase is a a big revealing factor of why she is doing this. She's kind of doing this to prove a point to herself, but no one's watching her. So she's in this kind of dance of, I'm going to leave him, but she knows she's not going to leave him. But for some reason, you know, when he's out at work, getting a suitcase and going to the bus stop and doing a play that she's leaving him for some way, shape or form makes her feel better about herself. And I'm, I don't think... I need to know why she does it. I just know she does it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know her psychological makeup as, as to why she has to do it, but I know she does it just to make, make herself feel better about herself. No, and I think by taking that approach, you illustrate the kind of, um, what do you call it, almost like an oxymoron of being in love with someone and going back to them, who leaving them to teach them a lesson for beating you up, yeah. to then go back to them to be beaten up again. Yeah, it's 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 illogical if you stepped away, but I think that you you chose you chose a route to 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 to, um, to illustrate that fact, which is arguably as big a problem as the domestic violence itself. Is that people become like your emotional yo-yos? Yeah, in the sense that the beating up pushes them away, but they find every way that they can to come back. And that's what makes the separation hard, and, and what we talked about earlier in this conversation, which was, which then, for some reason, the victim ends up with a with the big life changing decision, whereas the aggressor is going to work, he's having a pint with friends, he's playing squash. Yeah. That life is un is is completely unaltered from the victim's point of view. Yeah. So it's kind of like the victim, like, and I'm maybe overlaying a, a lot that's maybe not there, but hopefully this is what. You kind of you kind of would be looking for with a film you've made is that then you begin to sort of think about it from your you go well what would I do would I would I be that clear of mind would I keep going back and I yeah. like that I like that as well I like the idea I mean it's it's the thing we hear all the time and I, and like I, mean, I can't say enough really it's sort of you, you, that you you um, you don't preach to us. What you do is illustrate the problem, which I think is what drama should do. You illustrate the problem. When I was when I was in Norway for this film camp thing, we watched a, a fictional drama about post post uh, Balkan War. So yeah. it's about Bosnian kids and growing up, and it just looks like the normal, you know, kids being kids, because it's a former war torn area. Kids have got access to handguns and stuff they can find, and that becomes. A really odd toy so from a cultural point of view you as a Brit you're shocked watching it and then the reveal comes the thing that's behind the, the, the layers and suddenly you're like fuck this is these are all symptoms of a much bigger problem that is inside and equally that's what I feel that you've achieved with stop is that you've you're showing us the symptoms of a much bigger problem is that the society doesn't make domestic violence an easy solution and, and the victim is, is a victim twice, aren't they, really? They're, they're beaten up and frightened and scared, and then they've got nowhere to go. Mm. So it's like you've got double... You're a double victim, aren't you? But as well as, I think, you know, 
it's funny when when you're depressed or down or low and you know I've, I think everyone goes through tough times in their lives and yeah. when you're at your most lowest is paradoxically when you need your biggest amount of strength to get yourself out of it so when you kind of wake up in the morning you're like oh my god and I think being in this industry because it's so flighty and it's you know insecure you know you never know when your next paycheck's coming from and all that kind of stuff it can be tough and you're on your own you know you're generating your own work and it's it's a fucking you know you're Sisyphus you know heaving that rock up that bloody hill um, feels like pushing water to be honest with you yeah yeah <laughs> but um but you know when you're down and you're just like oh man I'm fucking sick of this shit when's me luck gonna turn or you know what I mean mm. and then you gotta go out and meet people and you know kind of go hey be Johnny on the spot as my brother says um mm. and kind of be gregarious and brilliant and talented and passionate and you're kind of like I just couldn't be fucking arsed but you do need that strength and it's really hard to get that strength when you're really down and low so that's what I found about Karen's character is like you know to leave somebody to fucking completely make that massive life change that's such a big choice she doesn't have the strength to do it which is why at the end she does what she does we've filmed two endings one where she gets on the bus and one where she doesn't. Mm. Um, and originally, she was meant to get on the bus and go and leave. And because of what Lisa, the actress, Lisa Kay, who played Karen, her performance was amazing. Like, and you, it would have been so disingenuous for her to have got seeing what she got had gone through emotionally for her to get on the bus at the end would have been like a, a Hollywood movie. Oh, and everyone lives happily ever after. Boom. And it would have been just an insult to. The character and plus to the context and the situation and the message. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And to anyone who might have been abused watching the film going, that's a crock of shit. But yeah, I yeah. think her, Karen's arc was that now she can't lie to herself anymore. Like meeting, um, meeting the girl, oh, what was her name? Uh, Nikki, yeah, meeting Nikki. She now, with, through her interaction with Nikki, she now knows... It's up to her, and she's got to change, and she's got to take the steps. But she's not strong enough to do it yet. But she will do it. No, no, no. And it's 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 a it's a, it's a clever film. And I should say at this point then that um, in the show notes, I'll put links to your a link a link to your okay. um, to your website, which has got embedded links to both um, Stop and Wipeout, so people can watch these for themselves. Yeah. Cool. Now, that's that's another crude segue to my to the final chapter of this conversation um most recently you've done a straight eight film i have yes the, again in the in the spirit of give me a up, deadline yeah give me a deadline get up off your ass and just bloody do it so i did a straight <coughs> film yeah which was great fun do you want for the benefit of people that don't know what straight eight is do you want to just explain what it is first before we yeah, describe yeah, what yeah. it is you did Indeed. Yeah, so Straight 8 is a competition where you get one Super 8 film cartridge, which is about three and a half minutes, and you put it into a Super 8 camera and you shoot on film. So it's on film. So the whole concept of Straight 8 is that you make a film, with no, you edit in camera, you have one take of every shot, mm. and you send that film away to them, and they get it processed. And in the meantime, you have two or three days to after you fil film the film, to create a soundtrack, uh, which then you send away to them, so they take the first frame of your visuals 
And the first frame is your audio, and then they put it together, and then you see the film the first time when it's projected in the cinema. So you don't know if the soundtrack that you've made works, because it might be out of sync, or it might, I don't know, it just might cut with the images. So how many people entered this competition? Uh, I think there was 161 from all around the world. So uh, we were lucky enough to be in the top eight. So we got to go to Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival, where we screened in... I I feel disingenuous saying we screened in Cannes, because we didn't, but we we were in a festival, and we were part of the film festival, but obviously we weren't... On certain regard and all that kind of, you know, big... No, 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 I understand. I mean, obviously, there are lots of things happening at Cannes where people screen films that are not... Yeah. They're not going to get... They're not showing it to win a prize in, 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 the, in, in the Cannes yeah. Festival sense. So, in, in, straight eight as a competition, you were showing... You got to show your film in Cannes under the straight eight banner, yeah? Yeah, and it, it played in the week that the Cannes Film Festival was playing. So, you know, by all... To intents and purposes, we played at the Cannes Film Festival. Where, whereabouts at Cannes did it show? Where, where, were the, where did it take place, that? Uh, in the... Yeah, on the main strip, you know. I don't know if you've been to Cannes, but the... I um, have, yeah, on the Croisette. Just past the Croisette, just one street down from it. It was in the Le Cinéma de Arcade. My French is awful, but... Uh, it was wonderful. I, you, you, I was like I was on the Côte d'Azur just then. Yeah, <laughs> and... Uh, the cinema, the arcade, so, which so, is a, so, is a so, they screen competition films in. So it was in a. Yeah, I was going to say. So yeah. So don't, don't, don't put your. I would say you, you're not in competition in terms of the Cannes Festival. We see the red carpet, but you were showing yeah, your film at Cannes Film Festival. There's no. I was indeed. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and it was great actually because straight eight basically. Uh, I kind of fa- I found this out afterwards, but the jury is bloody brilliant. So the, the jury was. Um, Asif Kapadia, who did Amy and Senna, and then there was a... He's a director. Then there was Ed Lachman, who's a very well-respected American DP who shot Aaron Brockovich and Carol and all that kind of stuff. And then Jason Solomons, who's the Observer film critic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was a pretty big, you know... Yeah, so, so, so I was going to say, yeah, you've, uh, you've, you've gone through some filters there to get to uh, be in the last eight. Yeah, completely, completely. So, so let's not keep anyone in suspense too much there, too much longer. Do you want to tell us what it was you did then with, so that, did, with that process in mind? What did you make? So we made, with Haste and Lawrence, the comedians who are in Wipeout, we made a little skit kind of based on Tomorrow's World and those kind of BBC technological um, films of the 60s and 70s and 80s about yeah. the internet. So it's called Social Networking Socially, uh, Society Through Technology, and it's about, it's just, these two scientists saying, in the future, you could have up to 13 friends. So it's all that very kind of po-faced British, um, you know, tomorrow's world type, look at what technology will offer us in the the year 2000. Um, So using the 8mm film stock was great because it kind of harks back to that milieu. And then of Haste and Lawrence... uh, yeah, so being comedy performers, they have a whole host of, you know, costumes that they keep. So we had loads of 1960s, 1970s-esque costumes of big, you know, kind of Michael Caine glasses and all that kind of malarkey. So, um, so yes, it was very good. It looks brilliant. So we saw it. We went to Cannes in, when was it? I think the 9th of May, I think, or the 12th of May. I can't remember now. 12th, uh, I think 12th. I, 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 went, think, I went about the 12th. Yeah, I think it was the 12th. And we screened... Uh, 
with seven other films. And yeah, they were brilliant. It was great to see. It was the sync did go a little bit, but I don't. We noticed because we knew, but most people didn't really notice. So the film still works, um, and it works really well. And people, yeah, we had a really really old. 1980s Macintosh computer that we used, which was a great, you know, prop. And, yeah, it was just... It, it came out really, really well. I've only seen it the once. It screened in the View Cinema in Piccadilly a few weekends ago, but I was working, so I couldn't go. But Haston Lawrence, Greg and Marie went, and uh, they said, yeah, the audience loved it. They said it was big belly laughs and... Um, and uh, yeah, rounds of applause, thunderous rounds of applause. So, so, so does straight eight take? Are they taking it to other places to show, or is that it then? For it? I think that's it. They're going to put it up on their website, okay. and I'm going to put it up on my. We're going to get the digital file back in a few weeks, and I'll um, put it up on my website and stuff like that. And we'll just start pushing it around, and maybe, you know, why not chuck it around some film festivals and see if it has a life after it. Um, but yeah, no, it's been, it was a really good experience. I really enjoyed it because we, out of nothing, we were kind of going. Uh, you know, we have to shoot this. I was getting married a few weeks after uh, Greg and Marie were getting really busy, so it was like, well, we've got two days to shoot this, what the hell are we going to do? And it just came out of nowhere. And to think that kind of arsing around in Greg's front room, shooting little skits, to then less than a month later being in Cannes, watching it being premiered, you know, it's like a massive... Uh, I, I was really stunned and couldn't get my head around it for a long time. Even when I was in Cannes, I'm going, I'm in Cannes watching me film. This is a bit nuts. So it, just, it was really surreal, but a really lovely surrealness. And I think Kieran Finnan, you know, who I was talking about, my friend who died, was up in heaven, like, you know, fucking having a Guinness, smoking a fag and doing his stupid <laughs> laugh. <laughs> it, you know what I mean? Just going fair fucks to you, man. It was, it was a great experience. Now, um, given, given the way you described the process of making it and, and the kind of dogmatic approach you have to take and 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 it's a it's a very analog way of making movies now you know because we live in an age where i can make stuff on my phone i and i can watch it on the screen as it's happening i can if i'm going bigger equipment we have monitor screens the directors can almost see what the rush is going to be like by the shot by the shot they're watching yeah, you've you, you with this process you've removed yourself from all the, that, those conveniences of modern technology how does that make you? Uh, how does that make you different in your approach to what you try to shoot when you've not got all that backup of a second takes, but b seeing what it is you've done? Because obviously, sending something away and not seeing it till it comes back processed is fairly yeah. unorthodox, isn't it? Oh, completely. Yeah, and editing in camera because we had to time. The shots because we needed to know, you know, it's a, it would have been really easy just to do a soundtrack like Wipeout and just have music over the whole thing. But we, because it's all narration and voiceover, yeah, we had to time. It's a really and as you said, analog way of doing it. So when my finger hit the trigger of the Super 8 camera, we pressed the stopwatch and counted this. You know, I go and say cut, as in take my finger off the trigger and then say that was three seconds so write down the timings and then when we were recording the voiceover look at the sheet and say right we've got three seconds to do the narration in to fit Jesus. the shot Jesus. so it was pretty mad yeah. Uh, and yeah you we rehearsed it as much as we could 
each shot and then just shot it really and then how was that i think it was good but we've no option of doing it again so let's move on <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean you can't no, no, totally, totally. Uh, i was kind of just making sure it was exposed to be honest but i think you did well um that's amazing but yeah but i think because me and greg and marie have worked so much together over the last couple of years we kind of have a shorthand and we know mm. you know greg's great because and marie is too but you know if it's not funny why are we doing it so there was quite a few conversations of like what's you know what's this you know why because they was diff they played different characters as well so why is this character doing this even though it was a little skit mm. the process was still the same of why why is this meant to be funny i can't see the way this is funny and then we'd have to we'd have a little you know 10 minute discussion about it and go okay yeah it's not funny because of this right maybe your character should do that all right cool let's do that so it was still quite an organic collaborative process which was great um but again we had to we you know we only had a limited amount of time to shoot it so we couldn't you know sit in the rewrite it over three or four days we said look we've got the guts of a day and a half to shoot this in because the deadline was the following week to send the film in so we just had to crack on with it as well and i'm a great believer of cracking on with it and just just shooting it. I had a great cinematography teacher when I was in doing my MA in film production in Dublin. Mm. I call Harry Purdue, who unfortunately died young as well. Um, but Harry was this Northside Dubliner, uh, and he was just—he was really, you know, very lovely, lovely man. Uh, he was just kind of a great cinematographer as well. He, uh, but I being a student I'd kind of over egg everything and over analyse everything and he just turned to me and go Paul just fucking shoot it would you you know <laughs> stop fucking stop fucking around. just fucking shoot it so that was Harry taught me just fucking shoot it you know what I mean yeah stop, yeah stop overthinking it stop over analysing it shoot the damn thing you know what you're doing let's all go home I look, for, all... I look forward to your memoir just fucking shoot it in, <laughs> yeah, exactly. in, in a few decades time yeah <laughs> Well, look, sir, we, we've covered a lot of ground and, and a lot of time, so I think, I think we should uh, bring proceedings to a close. There was other things I wanted to talk about, but we'll have to save that for another day. Yeah, no, great to have another chat with you uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed the process and the chat's been good. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.